hello. Here we are for the second of our podcasts. And uh, we are sitting in a room in London, in um, Holy Trinity Brompton, and this is um, uh, our St Paul's Theological Centre podcast number two. Uh, we have around the table today um, Mike Lloyd, who was here uh, last time. I was, indeed, yes. Hello. Hello, good. And we also have Jane, Jane Williams, and it's great to have you here as well, Jane. Sorry I missed the last one. Flu struck. Yeah, we were very sorry as well, actually. We were, we were kind of... So were the listeners. Absolutely. <laughs> Yes, it was right. It was, we said it was rather testosterone full last time. <laughs> <laughs> so we're looking forward to a bit of sort of grace and sense to come into the <laughs> to come into the conversation. I brought grace and sense with me, and I'll do my best. <laughs> exactly. Well, today we have um, the emails are beginning to fly in from all all, all over the place, really, and uh, we have a number of different things to look at. So we've, what we've done is just picked out a few of them, and um, but uh, thank you to, to those of you who have sent in emails and. Uh, uh, if you are listening to this for the first time, then you are very welcome to send in any email, any question about theology, God, life, whatever it is, to uh, godpod at htb.org.uk. Is that right? It is right. Good. Well, uh, today, um, our first question, uh, which is one from um, John in Clapham. You know who you are. And the question is this, he says, um, I understand the sacrificial element of Jesus' death and why that was necessary to draw us all back to God. But my question is, why does it require an acceptance from us to benefit from it? Surely if Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice because God so loved the world, then it seems a little simplistic for that benefit to be dependent upon our intellectual acceptance. Philosophically, Jesus defeating death is once and for all and cannot be just for those who accept it as true. Man United winning the treble is true regardless of who believes it or not bad analogy but you know what I mean yeah well there's the question um, and I guess it's kind of asking why do we need to have faith in this thing in the forgiveness that's offered just to us by God if God has forgiven us does that not operate anyway well, what I do you think? Mike's already partly answered it I think there are, that we have a, a a serious hasn't problem. Said anything with yet. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the way I do <laughs> We have a serious problem with accepting that we don't actually have to earn our own salvation. Hmm. But that is the point of, of what Jesus does for us, is that it's something that we can't do for ourselves. Oh. And it's very important not to put that element back in and say that there is some, that's something that we actually have to do for ourselves. It has been done yeah. by Jesus. Yeah. And if we could have done it for ourselves, we wouldn't have needed Jesus to do it oh. for us. Oh. So then the question is, what has been done? And I think that's the question that we often don't get on to. We know that Jesus has done it, whatever it oh. is. But if what Jesus has done is to make it possible for us to reconnect with God, if Jesus has removed the barriers between us and God, if that's what sin is, the thing that separates us from God, then obviously there is a, um, a part of what Jesus has done that is our living with God. And that is, in a sense, acceptance. But it isn't conditional. Our, our, what Jesus does for us does not become conditional on our accepting it. But our ability to actually live with God is something that we grow in as we walk as disciples. Yeah. I, think, I think the other thing that you have to, to keep in there somewhere is that God never forces things on people. Yeah. Um, and that the part of the way in which he works through Jesus is, is to leave us free to still to reject what is offered. Mm. And the best picture I've ever had of that is, is if you've um, read 
C.S. Lewis's Narnia books, the last one, The Last Battle, which is a very dark book, has that extraordinary picture at the end of the dwarves sitting in a field full of flowers with a feast spread in front of them and insisting that they're sitting in a dark stable eating stale bread and water. They absolutely refuse to see what is around them because, it has, because they haven't earned it. And I think that is actually a, a very good picture of, of the, the possibility of rejecting what is freely given to us by God. Yeah, there's something there about God taking us seriously as individuals, isn't there? That this isn't just something that's done as a lump for us as a human race, but actually it has to become personal, it has to become something that's mine, it has to become true for me, rather than just true for everyone, and therefore my engagement with it through faith, which is the way we re- relate to God primarily, is actually quite important. Mm. Um, and it's obviously a question, isn't it, that um, all Christians have been asked throughout the centuries. Paul is obviously asked by people, so does it matter if we sin then? Yeah. If God's done it for us anyway, shall we then sin that grace may sure. abound? And Paul says, well, don't be so stupid. You can see him getting <laughs> aggravated about it, can't you? No, I, th- I mean, it's interesting that the questioner talks about uh, whether it's not a little simplistic for that benefit to be dependent on our intellectual acceptance, as if faith is intellectual acceptance. Uh, in which case you can see why all those difficulties arise. If it's a relational acceptance, you can more easily see why it's important uh, to be accepted, because otherwise, as Jane was saying, we don't have any choice in the matter. We become robots. We become um, something other than free, rational, intelligent human beings who can say yes or no to a relationship. And we don't engage with the process of transformation, because I guess the whole point of faith is not just that it gives us a sort of ticket to heaven which we then have and then we cash it in when we die it is that this begins a whole process of, of encounter with God which then changes us as people and we have to be actively involved in that process because God won't force us into it um, I guess the other thing that, that um, it brings to mind for me is, is it's, a point, it's a point Calvin makes uh, when he writes about this and um, he writes about all the things that God has, has done for us in Christ and that Christ's incarnation and death and resurrection and the gift of justification, sanctification, all, this, all these long words that theologians use. And then he says um, something like, it, if all of this remains outside us, it is of no use to us. Mm. It's as if all that Christ has done for the human race, for me, but if all that is there, objectively true, but it's not true for me, if it's not something that's become real for me, it's of no use to me. This has to become part of me. It has to, Christ has to become part of me. I have to become part of Christ. I have to be united with Christ. That's the language he uses. And uh, I guess faith is the way that, that happens, and therefore that engagement is vital. Mm. I, I, I agree with that. The, the phrase true for me... Uh, oh. It has its dangers, doesn't it? Yeah, no, fair enough. Kind of yep. relativistic situation. Yep. I remember That's a right. friend of mine who was a clergyman who was in a group of other clergy who were being very relativistic. Uh, and said, in the end, he got desperate and said, Well, I hear what you're saying, he said, but I'm afraid I have to say that relativism just isn't true for me. Yeah. <laughs> sure. yeah. Um, and uh, yeah. he's, the question is right here when he says that Manchester United winning the treble is re- true regardless of whether you believe it or not. Mm. There's an objectivity to the Christian faith. The point, the point is we need to make it our own as well. We yeah. need to appropriate that yeah. objective truth yeah. uh, and make it a subjective truth as well as an objective right. one. 
Yeah. What Luther says is, is that since we're going to quote our Reformation specialists here, is that, is that it, what Jesus does for us doesn't change our nature, which it clearly doesn't. We don't suddenly get mm. to be better people, mm. but it does change our status before yep. God. Yep. God decides that we are free and innocent. And I quite like the free metaphor because I think you can see when, for example, um, God liberates the people of Israel from Egypt, that they are free but they still act like slaves. Mm. They still act, they go to Moses and moan because their bread isn't on the table every day and they don't know what to do and they have to start taking responsibility for their own lives. They act like people who are still slaves, although actually they're free and they have to learn to live as free people. And I think that's actually quite a useful metaphor. There. It takes the nature a long time to catch up it with does. the status. It does. It? it begins a process of changing the nature, but it's only a slow, laborious, painful... But yeah. I think that holds together both the objective and the subjective there, that something yeah. is objectively done, it is done, but we have to be transformed in order to benefit from yeah. it personally. Yeah. Very good. Anybody else want to add anything else to that one? Okay, well, John from Clapham, we hope that... Um, go some way towards answering your question. Okay, well the next thing we're going to do is uh, we, we, we all need to introduce um, a little extra element into um, our God pod. And this is a, a little item which we're going to try and do each time. And uh, it's called a weird religious stuff. There is something very odd about religion that it makes people do very strange things and come up with very odd ideas. And, um, As you probably already discovered through our discussion. Yes, it attracts very odd people like us. <laughs> um, but anyway, so this, this one we've had sent in um, from uh, a website. And I, I, I still can't work out whether this is a complete wind-up or whether it's actually real. But it's a thing called um, Afterlife Telegrams. And um, what this, this says, it's a website called afterlifetelegrams.com. And it says this, for a donation of $5 per word, you can tell where this comes from. Um, <laughs> apologies. <Straight>. To, uh, <laughs> exactly. Kicker <laughs> from anywhere. So I, should, I shouldn't assume these things. Should I? <laughs> anyway, yeah, that's right. We move swiftly on. We, uh, so, for the donation of $5 per word, we can have telegrams delivered to people who've passed away. This is done with the help of terminally ill volunteers who memorize the telegrams before passing away and then deliver the telegrams after they've passed away. We call this an afterlife telegram. The $5 per word fee, depending on the wishes of the messenger, it is either given to a relative, donated to a charity, or used to pay for medical bills, <laughs> which presumably would defeat the object. <laughs> <laughs> Do you get your money back? <laughs> it's the medical bills. <laughs> That's right, exactly. The company does not keep any of the fees from the sale of the telegrams. Well, what do you think about this? Do you think this is a good idea? Are you going to be, be clicking on the button to send an afterlife telegram? Uh, it's, it's crazy, isn't it? Um, what is interesting is the assumptions it makes, isn't it? That, um, that there will be, and I think they're quite reasonable assumptions at that <laughs> level, which is that <laughs> A, there is uh, more to life from this life, um, B, that there is communication and relationship continuing, or at least trans- in a transformed way. Yeah. The other side of the grave. Um, I, I think the, the messenger bit is um, probably. Mildly loopy. But <laughs> <laughs> Just mildly. <laughs> I really don't like to think of my poor dead relations sitting around hoping for a message from me because I hope they're yeah, having right. more fun in heaven. Exactly. What would you say? You know, kind of, I don't know, if I got the milk, can you send some quickly or something like that? Or, yeah, I don't know what you'd say, really. It's a rather odd thing, isn't it? Say, so we're all doing okay down here. 
Yes, and of course what we don't know is how much of that they know. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. Unknowns here. But presumably they have a great deal more trust in God than we are able to have in this life. So I imagine they would know that we would be all right. Yeah, that's right. And yes, I think pr- I mean, prayer is, is the better route here, yes. isn't it? Yes. I mean, God yes. being the one person who can hold together the living and the dead yeah. in one communion. The other slightly bizarre thing he says is, um, if the messenger who was given the customer's telegram should have the good fortune to survive one year past the day the telegram was given... Uh, then the fee is refunded. Oh, it is. Oh, right. so <laughs> very nice, ethical, honest. Yeah. It's very ethical. It's very nice of them yeah. to kind of, you know, hope that people will survive for a bit longer. So, um, so there you go. Afterlife telegrams. If you want to do that, afterlifetelegrams.com. I don't think it's just Christians who are loopy, though, Graham. I think you know, if you listen to people talking on the tube or anything, that the world is full of loopy people. It's just that we encourage people to talk to us here. In exactly, that's right. It's a good thing. Isn't it, it is a very good thing. That's right. <laughs> Do you have examples of loopy people you've been listening to on the tube? <laughs> um, not repeatable ones. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Exactly. Well, that's um, that one. Our next question is, um, this one is uh, about baptism. It's a very simple one. Should children be baptised as infants? If not, does that mean that billions of Christians are going around unbaptised? So, yeah, should children be baptised as infants? Well, I'm going to have a go at this one um, myself. And, um, well, to begin with, anyway, just launch us off with it. And I guess I'm kind of interested in this one because I, I actually grew up in a Baptist sort of church. That's really where I... My parents were Baptists, and that's kind of where I grew up. And the kind of assumption was that you, you, you kind of waited until you were about 12 or 13, and then you had a, some sort of conversion experience, and then you got baptized. And, and I mean, yeah, yeah, I ought to say, I mean, Baptists, I mean, Baptists are great, great people. I mean, they're, and I love Baptists, so some of my best friends are Baptists. <laughs> All of that. So, yeah, so <laughs> proviso here. Um, but I guess what, what, what struck me about it, the experience of growing up in that kind of environment, was that, um, that actually when you're, when you're a teenager, if you grow up in a Christian home particularly, and uh, you get to 13, 14, 15, and you start to think about, uh, am I going to do this or not? The decision I think that you have as a Christian teenager is different from the one that you have as a and not growing up in a non-Christian home. If you grow up in a non-Christian home, you, you encounter the Christian faith, age 14 or whatever. The question is, do I opt into this thing? The question you face as a Christian teenager growing up within the church and within Christian family is, actually, do I opt out of this thing? Mm. Or do I continue in it? And I guess that was the question that faced me, I think, as a teenager, was, well, actually, am I going to continue in this faith that my parents have taught me and, and that my church has encouraged me in? And um, I suppose what I felt was just slightly odd about growing up in that environment was, was uh, you know, it was a great church and um, lots of really good things about it. But I suppose the, the odd thing was that I felt, you know, I was, I was being taught to, to pray and to read my Bible and to, be, to relate to God as my Father and Jesus as my Saviour. And, and, and to all intents and purposes, I was being treated as a Christian. Um, but then there was this other bit that was sort of saying, well, you're not really a Christian until you've had this conversion experience thing and you then get baptised and, uh, and so on so it's a slightly kind of odd, odd thing so, and I suppose looking back on it I, I kind of feel well actually when I was six I think I trusted God much more implicitly and without all the questions that I had later on as an, as an adult so why could I not be treated as a Christian then and then and actually fully be included within the family of God um, through the 
initiatory sacrament of uh, baptism. Um, so I suppose it's for those kind of reasons. I mean, there's a whole lot of other reasons as to, you know, did the early church baptize infants and all that, which we can go into. But I suppose those are my initial thoughts as to my experience of growing up within that, that environment. So actually, when I later on um, became a, an Anglican, I kind of thought through all of that whole, whole business. And so it kind of made much more sense to me to, when our own children were born, to actually have them baptized as, as children, because I think you know, they were going to treat them as, as Christians, bring them up as Christians, right from the word, the word go. So for you, it was more the, the experience of growing up as a Christian teenager that led you to this view? rather than looking at the biblical stuff, looking at the, at the church evidence and all of that. Well, I guess I, I looked at that afterwards, and that was all part of the re-evaluation of it, just reflecting on that experience. I guess, I mean, I, I think on the, on the biblical material, obviously, there's, you don't get many explicit examples of children being baptised. Obviously, there's the question of the, the Philippian jailer and his family who, whose household are baptised. Now, did that include children? It probably did. Um, but I can see on the other side, you can argue that, well, there's nothing explicit that says any children were baptised and all the evidences of baptism we have in the New Testament is all for, um, for adults. Um, I think that the point that uh, convinces me about that is that we do know that the early church did end up baptising infants. And uh, if in the New Testament times it was pretty strictly just for adults, and then a couple of hundred years later they were baptising babies, you'd have thought there would be some kind of argument, mm. some kind of theological discussion about that quite significant change at some point during those few hundred years. Now, actually, you don't get any discussion of that at all within the literature. If you look at the early literature of the Christian church, it's just not an issue. No one, no one, things they no did one decides argue it. About, but that wasn't one of them. They argued all the time, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but they didn't argue about that. some evidence, of, um, Constantine people didn't want to get baptised till their deathbed. Yeah, that's right. Because they yeah. were they were convinced that baptism should mean a real change of life yeah. and that you should only get baptised if you're going to be perfect sure. yeah. after yeah. baptism. They didn't realise what you were saying earlier about exactly. the difference between status and exactly. nature. That's exactly. right, yeah. Um, but that seems to be a slightly different issue because that's about postponing baptism. But that's about what you think baptism is. To the end, yeah. Yes, I mean, that you can't uh, afford to, to do it and yeah. until you're about to die. Right. <laughs> Which is difficult to yeah. time, isn't it? It, it is, indeed. You <laughs> might get it wrong. Particularly if you're an emperor, I might just be poisoned at any moment. Yeah, maybe you could tie it into the afterlife telegrams at the same time. But I suppose it is a strange thing, isn't it, that when people, they seem to postpone baptism because they didn't want to sin after baptism, because baptism was like a wiping of the slate clean. And then if you sinned afterwards, you sort of spoiled it, and therefore you left it to the yes. last minute so that you could then die with a clean slate. Which again is a slightly, slightly odd, thing, odd yeah. way of thinking about yes. it. Weird religious stuff. Yeah. Exactly, that's right. Um, I suppose for me, I think the biblical evidence is, is, is strongest in, in Colossians 2, where Paul seems to link baptism and circumcision in, mm. in Colossians 2, 11 and 12. And uh, because circumcision was something done to infants it seems appropriate therefore that baptism the new circumcision should be as well yeah. um, that and the practical you know, I got a Baptist friend who's a wonderful Christian woman 
in their forties and never been baptized because there was no obvious mm. point at which to mm. do it. Yeah. Um, it was just an, a natural progression of faith all sure. the way through. So the question, you know, are there um, billions of Christians, billions of Christians going around unbaptized is probably a slight overstatement of the numbers of Baptists in the world. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there probably are some. And and then one wonders what the questioner is afraid will happen to those people. What, um, which seems to be implied, doesn't yes. it? Are they in danger if they're going around unbaptized? Mm. Um, which is, you can see in things Trust. like Tess yeah. of the Durbervilles, can't you, by Thomas Hardy, yeah. her fear that her unbaptized baby will go to, to hell yeah. or mm. to some place far from God because mm. it's not baptized. And that again shows a sort of deep mistrust in the, the love and grace yeah. of God, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. I guess, it, I suppose where it comes from, I think this fear is, is, is the effect of, of indiscriminate infant baptism which I suppose from a, say from a Baptist perspective is to say well actually what it kind of did was persuade everyone they were Christian anyway and therefore mm. they didn't have to bother too much about living the Christian life or being serious about their faith or anything like that and therefore it was something that was quite damaging to the mm. Christian church and therefore you had this impetus in the, in the Reformation period and beyond to say well, well actually no being a Christian is all about faith and taking this thing seriously and, and therefore only people who've genuinely can be seen to have repented and believed and changed their life should be baptized and and uh, it's almost too easy to do it to to babies i have to say as a christian parent what i part of what i think i'm doing bringing my children to baptism is asking other christians to help me bring them up as christians because oh. baptism is a public thing that that you where you commit yourself and ask other people to help you Bring because children. Age, 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 God, and yes. to the community. Indeed. Community. And yeah. to, to trying to, to teach values and, and live yeah. life in a way that will help yeah. those children see what sure. you're talking about. And you are bringing the children into that community, aren't you? You're yes. saying that they are properly yeah. members of this community. They're not sort of outside until they've gone through some stage later on. And um, certainly, all children who, I mean, all children and all adults have to make at various stages of their lives, their own commitments. Yeah. And um, most of us have to do it more than once, I think. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't have to be tied in with baptism. I think there ought to be um, other ways in which the church community actually helps people to make, to make those affirmations. Confirmation is clearly one of those times when people take um, an, an adult responsibility for their own faith. Yeah. But I, I also think there. Are, I mean, I, a lot of churches, when you have baptisms, encourage the whole congregation to reaffirm their baptismal vows, and I think that's a very good idea too. Yes, there's a, in, in many ways, infant baptism is a very good picture of uh, the grace of God. Mm. Yeah. It, you don't have to earn it. You don't have to earn it by intellectual ability or um, by achievement or anything like that. It's just given uh, to us in our helplessness uh, and is there by a very good picture of the grace of God whenever it comes to us. Yeah. And in a sense it has a very positive view I think of, of the, the place of children within the church. Mm. It actually says children matter within the church. They're not just someone to be put to one side and to be postponed until later on but it's saying no you are fully part of the church I mean it brings in the wider question of whether children should be admitted to communion which is another question we probably won't deal with that today we'll do that another time but, um, but I, yeah, I think it's saying something very positive about, about the church as being a body that includes not just rational grown up adults but we are really say, taking children seriously they are fully members of this, this community they are not the future of the church they exactly. are the church yes. that's right yeah, yeah. 
but also that baptism, like all of these sacraments, unlike faith itself, is not simply a private thing. We help each other to learn about God in community, and that's what the church is, is there for. And, th- and that's why we have sacraments, rather than simply sitting in our own bedrooms and making our personal yep. commitment. So you need that as well. Just to be honest, so. <laughs> well, okay, before we move on from the question of baptism, um, Mike, I think you have something to add. Yes, two clergy find themselves sitting next door to each other on the train. And slightly worryingly, one of them thinks that the way to initiate a good conversation would be uh, to bring up a bone of contention, a theological bone of contention. And so uh, he says to the other one, do you believe in infant baptism? And the other one says, believe in it, I've seen it done. Yes. I'm looking forward to a talk given by a baby. <laughs> My experience of infant baptism, <laughs> what it did for me. <laughs> by Johnny, aged seven months. Yeah. <laughs> Great, okay. Well, thank you for that question. We, um, well, we're going to try and do one more. We've got time for one more. We've got time for one more. I think. Time for one more. This is um, dinosaurs from baptism to dinosaurs. <laughs> not quite sure and what no, the link is there. Dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> That's an idea. We need a rather large font, I think, for the <laughs> Tyrannosaurus <laughs> Rex. Brave clergy person. Actually, clergy sprinkling water on the head of these things. Um, yeah. Now the question is this, and this is from. Um, Tony Adamson, Adam Adamson, so hi Tony. Um, dinosaurs fossils, the earth being four billion years old, what's all this about then? How should the Christian view these things? And I guess the question is, um, yeah, well, where do the dinosaurs come? They don't get mentioned in the Bible. Um, human beings seem to come on the scene after dinosaurs. And yet, in the Bible, we're told that it seems to be in Genesis that um, Adam was created right at the very beginning of time so did the bible get it wrong do they not know about dinosaurs or is this all some confidence trick where god has placed these fossils just to kind of um, deceive us and get the scientists off on the wrong track so uh, mike i think you're gonna you're, you're an expert on dinosaurs uh, as you are an expert on evil anything anything weird we've put in your direction so well, I think the first thing to say is that just because they're not mentioned in the Bible doesn't mean we don't have to discard the idea. I mean, kangaroos are not mentioned in the Bible, but there are not too many people who kind of dispute or feel that they need to dispute the existence of kangaroos. Um, of course, there are things that the Bible doesn't know about. Um, doesn't know about the theory of relativity. Um, and therefore, you're not turning to it as a textbook on dinosaurs, kangaroos, or relativity. Um, and that's the second thing to say, I think. You've got to look at what the Bible is. Uh, it's, it's asking different questions than science is asking. Uh, science is asking questions like uh, how and when. By and large, theology and the Bible are asking questions like who. Uh, is there anybody behind this? Is there any purpose to it? Why? What's the thing for? Um, and in the case of Genesis, what does that mean for the self-understanding and the mission of Israel? Those are the sorts of questions that it's trying to answer. Mm-hmm. Um, thirdly, I think I'd want to say that um, 
the sun and the moon are not created until the fourth day so the six days we're not talking about periods of 24 hours here and, and the author is, makes it clear it seems to me, that that's not what Yoshi is talking about um, by the way in which the, the thing is set up um, he, he or she uses figurative language picture language and not only uses picture language but actually points out that it is picture language there are little signs all over the early chapters of Genesis saying hello I'm a symbol uh, you don't get an oak tree or an apple tree it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil which uh-huh. a clearer way of saying I'm a symbol mm. would be hard to imagine really uh, so I think we have to realise that we don't have in the, in the great words of John Stott uh, in Genesis a manual of dendrology or herpetology <laughs> no one else would use a word like that <laughs> well, yeah, herpetology yeah. sounds like a disease or something. Is a study of snakes is it? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's what sounds very uncomfortable to me trees, things. Uh, but that's not what it's trying to do it's trying to tell us an account of the origins of our universe that explain that there's a purpose behind it, uh, there's a person behind it who has those purposes, mm. who loves creation and, and has purposes for his creatures. Um, and I don't myself see it as an incompatible account with the evolutionary hypothesis. Um, the problem seems to me, in, in terms of reconciling the two accounts, is not actually creation, but the fall. Yep. And perhaps we can come on to have another yep. discussion. It always gets back to the fall with yeah, you, doesn't it, it, Mike? I always bring everything back to you. Exactly. Yeah. That's right. You have that kind of mind. I do. <laughs> yeah. Which is fair enough because that is part of. Uh, that's another kind of question that this, these stories are looking at is if we were designed to live with the God who loves us, how come we don't? Um, and that, that is yeah. one of the questions that the Genesis sure. creation stories are looking at. That's right, it's trying to explain why this world is as it is. Mm-hmm. I think the, the other thing that strikes me about it is that if you think of the way the story could have been told, it could have been told in such a way that God created the world just like that. And he snapped his fingers and the world just came into being. But actually the story is told to us that, that actually in the act of creation time is involved. That this does take a period of time and it talks about it in terms of these seven days which I think as you said I don't think we are meant to take a seven 24 hour periods but we are meant to understand that this is a, that time is involved in the process of creation and that in a sense creation continues after the seven days and that, that human beings are given this responsibility to to, to to tame the growth to bring order and to bring um, to, to almost continue that work of, uh, of creation with God and uh, and I think because of that, that, that to me is a hint that, that kind of chimes in in a way with the sense that creation is not just a once and for all thing, that actually the process of creation, the process of bringing this world into being and maturing it in the way that we can even see going on still today is actually part of God's design for, for, for creation. Mm-hmm. And therefore, um, the whole thing of that is evolution resp- compatible with the Genesis stories. Well, I think it probably is in the sense that, yeah, it involves time in the process of creation. Now, whether the precise form in which evolution takes is exactly the way God wanted it to be is a different question, I think, yes. as to whether God really did intend the survival of the fittest and that the weak go to the wall, I think is another question altogether. Exactly, that's right. That may not be the way God intended evolution to work, but the idea that 
this world came into being over time, which involved things like the coming of dinosaurs before the arrival of, of, of humanity, seems to be again quite, um, quite compatible with the story. The nature read in Tooth and Claw bit is, is part of the myth of evolution, isn't it? We actually, there is still a lot of de- debate among um, among scientists about what drives evolution, whether it is actually the, the survival of the fittest or whether it's actually um, the survival of groups of, of, of communities of types of people and animals that help each other. So um, I think one shouldn't assume that evolution is one single scientific proven theory. It is in itself a theory with, um, with suggestions and with, uh, that has changed considerably over the couple of hundred years it's been around. Um, and that there is some debate about. So um, it isn't one proven theory over against a pictorial account in Genesis. There are different accounts of how things may or may not have been. It has changed over time. It used to be seen as a kind of steady, smooth progress. Indeed. It is now seen as a much more jerky um, process. And that's, uh, I think one of the things that people worry about with evolution is that it will iron out the uniqueness of humanity in mm. some way and, and us being made in the image of God. And a useful picture that I picked up from Don Mackay uh, was that of a gas tap. If you've got a, a gas, a very finely graded gas tap, you turn it on very slowly. Initially there's not enough gas in the air for it to ignite. Turn it up a little bit more, still not, a little bit more, still not. And at a particular point, there's enough mm. gas in the air for the thing to ignite. So you can have a steady progression mm. and still have something decisively different happening at a t- particular point along that process. Uh, so it could be that um, you know, there's a particular point at which these beings have enough uh, relational capacity and moral capacity and mm. spiritual capacity for God to relate to them in a new way and give them new tasks. Um, even though it's actually not a smooth sure. process, but mm-hmm. nevertheless, even if it were, something radically mm-hmm. different could happen. I think, and, yeah, and another way of looking at that, I think, is this, it's actually tied into the whole idea of election that God does seem to, you know, throughout the book of Genesis and beyond, to constantly choose one over another, whether it's Jacob over Esau, whether it's Isaac over Ishmael and so on. And that kind of seems to happen in the, in the creation as well, that out of all the different species of, that God creates within the world, he seems to, for some reason, choose this particular one, Homo sapiens, to be the bearer of his image. And in a way, that's, that kind of ties in, it seems to me, with this, this God who, who, who chooses particular people. He chooses Israel out of all the nations of the earth. Why? Well, we don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, not because they're any better than anybody else, but just because he chooses them. And um, maybe that's something we can say theologically about, about what makes us different. Um, it's actually the fact that we are chosen mm-hmm. to, to, to play this particular role of caring for creation in God's name. It's not that we are somehow better than the rest of creation or that we are sort of somehow more worthy than, than anything else, but we are given this distinct role by God to, to, to care for it in his name. And I think that's, you do have to say that if you're going to talk about election, you have to say that election is not into a special yeah, favourite relationship, right, exactly. but into yeah. a relationship of responsibility. Yeah. So being chosen by God means that you are then chosen to demonstrate True. more about God to yeah. the rest of the world. That's right. As Israel was yeah. called to be a light. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Mm. And I think just on, on the dinosaurs, I think it's quite interesting that in the story of Genesis, we actually do get let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things and wild animals of the earth and every kind before you get the creation of, mm. of humanity. 
Mm. So if you're kind of worried about where are the dinosaurs, I think that's where they are. It's <laughs> in Genesis 1.24. Um, yeah. But I found it really helpful what Mike was saying about actually looking at what the story itself says it's doing. The fact that there are places where it says, look, I'm an image. I think that's a really helpful thing to say because we feel we're not treating the Bible with proper respect if we can't fit all the accounts together. But actually we're not treating it with proper respect if we don't look at what it's actually saying it's talking about. Um, So... Okay, well, good, thank you. And um, thank you, Tony, for your question. I think we've come to the end of our um, ramblings for today. And um, so thank you, Mike. Pleasure. And Jane. to ramble. Rambling is one of the great theological skills. (laughs) Thank you, Jane. And this is um, Graham Tomlin just uh, saying uh, goodbye to our second podcast. And uh, we will see you next time. If you want to email any questions, the email address again is godpod at hgv.org org.uk. Okay, and we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.